You'll join me in Galatians chapter 3. We continue in our series through Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We will be looking this morning at chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. The title of our sermon is Covenant and Law. And our key words for our worshipers in training are offspring, covenant, and promise. Now, if there's one thing in this world that we could say politicians are generally known for, it is making promises. All of us are accustomed to hearing promises made by those who are seeking to get you to vote for them so they can take whatever office they're running for or to gain support uh, in, in an election year or to improve their favorability ratings or whatever it is, there are a lot of promises. But there's another part to the promises of politicians that we often think of, isn't there? It's whether or not those promises will be kept. A lot of promises are made, but Voter-based politics has gained quite a reputation for many of those promises being broken. For example, 1916, Woodrow Wilson promised to keep the United States out of World War I. The very next year, the U.S. was right in the middle of World War I. In 1928, Herbert Hoover promised a chicken in every pot and two cars in every garage. Less than a year later was the Great Depression. In 1988, George H.W. Bush made a promise saying, Read my lips, no new taxes. And then in 1990, having made no headway with his opponents in Congress, taxes were raised. Now, it doesn't matter which party they're in or what office they are running for. I think most people have become so accustomed to hearing promises from politicians and seeing them broken that we simply take them with a grain of salt. We don't trust them. We simply wait and see what will happen. But while politicians are so often distrusted, maybe they feel picked on, Because of so many broken promises, there's nothing new under the sun. And I assure you, it's not a phenomenon specific to politics. Some 3,000 years ago, there was another kind of people with an entirely different kind of promise. An interesting band of vagabonds. The children of the Israelites who had been slain in the desert because of their lack of faith. They came before Joshua and they said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua had lived long enough to know better. In our day, we could say he heard enough political speeches and had seen enough political offices play out to know better. It was simple ignorance and pride on the part of the Israelites that they would make such a claim He told them in response, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will forgive 
He will, excuse me, not forgive your transgressions of your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you and having, after having done you good. But the people rose up again and said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua responded, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And so with that, a covenant of works was ratified before God among the people of Israel. Now Joshua knew that making this covenant of works was a good thing in many ways. For God had told Moses in Deuteronomy 4, what great nation is there? that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Laws provide direction and order and stability. It's it's one of the three uses of the law that it would be used in civil society. And a pledge on the part of those under the law to uphold it will provide self-imposed safety and freedom, assuming the law is just. But Joshua knew something else that only could be known through great wisdom. And that is that a covenant of work made between man and God, a covenant wherein something is required of man to fulfill it, is a covenant entered into very dangerously. What happens when the pledge on the part of man is eventually broken? Well, any covenant of works comes not only with blessings, but also with curses. Broken promises bring curses. But man in his nature is quick to make promises. How many times have you made a promise to God? But man is just as quick to break promises. Perhaps we're a lot more like politicians than we care to admit. Even a cursory reading of the Old Testament will show you why Joshua had the concern that he did. Things don't turn out well for Israel, do they? And it really didn't take long for them to get there. Now thus far in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul had dealt with several things, but nothing so prominent as his discussion on the relationship between the law and the gospel. Now hopefully by now we have a very clear thinking on this. We understand that not one iota, not one dot of what it takes for us to be justified by our own uh, cannot be done by our own personal works of the law. We cannot be justified. We cannot be saved by doing anything on our part. And we said last week it's presented in the Bible that one could hypothetically obtain salvation by keeping the requirements of the law. However, there really is no possible way that we can do that because we are conceived in sin. And from the very moment of our conception, our nature is bent towards sin. And before we can even think upon the law and whether or not we are keeping the law, we have already broken the law. And so we have no ability to uphold this covenant of works whereby we fulfill the law. 
It's by the very nature of man that keeps him from obeying the law. And that leads to where Paul is in his letter now in the section we're looking at this morning as we are reminded again that the law will not save us. Only the grace of God will save us. And this is really the introduction of a new theme that we will pick up and will continue on through the letter. And that is the covenants of God. Now, Paul deals heavily with covenants in chapter 4, and we'll get there, but he touches on it here in our passage this morning. He's addressing some arguments that he anticipates the Judaizers are going to raise as he's been refuting them along the way up until now. Now, specifically, I hope we can begin to see that these categories that Paul has been using of law and grace or law and gospel, that they would find a place within the covenantal framework of Scripture and the covenantal framework of God's dealing with humanity. So there's a deep theological element to what we're looking at this morning. But by way of application, I want, I want you to keep in mind something as we work through the text today. A question to be asking of what Paul is teaching us Do I want to relate to God on the basis of a covenant of works or do I want to relate to God on the basis of a covenant of grace? In other words, do I want to make a promise to God and in that promise there's something that I am obligated to fulfill or do I want to make a covenant of grace with God? God making a promise with me in which he fulfills the responsibility. I'm hoping we can think with the wisdom of Joshua when he cautioned the Israelites. Instead of assuming like the Israelites that we're not all just a bunch of promise-breaking politicians. Do we assume that we can uphold the law in a covenant of works. Well, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 18 in chapter 3. But to see where Paul is headed, let's think again about the whole point of this chapter. Remember first in verses 1 through 5, Paul told the Galatians that if they received the Spirit of God through faith in Christ and not by works of the law, which they did, then the only way to continue on, empowered by the Spirit of God, is by faith alone and not by works of the law. Remember, some of the Galatian Christians had been bewitched. They had been deceived by Satan into thinking that they had to achieve some some part of their eternal reward by merit. Some apparently believe that they were justified by works. Others believe they were saved by grace, but they continue in favor with God by their works. And so Paul corrects them and he shows them that it has always been by grace through faith in Christ alone. And Paul proves his point then historically in verses 6 through 9. And he gives us the example of Abraham and the teaching that the only way to be a child of Abraham is to have the faith of Abraham. And that faith of Abraham was in Christ. And the blessing of Abraham comes not to those who show their merit through works of the law, but to those who trust in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, just as Abraham did. 
And then we saw last week in verses 10 through 14 that Paul makes the same point a little bit differently. He says that if you do seek to live by works of the law, you are under a curse. The law reveals your complete inability to keep it. And the more you try to keep it, the more you transgress it. But God, in his great love for us, sent Jesus Christ to take our place, to become a curse for us, so that instead of inheriting the curse, we now inherit the blessings of Abraham and the Spirit of God when we trust in Jesus alone. That's been his argument thus far in chapter 3. And so all three paragraphs have had this point. You cannot become a complete, sanctified Christian. You cannot become a child of Abraham. You cannot enjoy the promises of the Spirit if you are living by works of the law instead of by faith in the Son of God. And the effort to keep the law as a means of obliging God or man to bless you is a transgression of the law itself. And it brings a person underneath the curse of the law. So the Judaizers are wrong to teach the Galatian Christians to supplement their faith with works of the law, and Paul is bending all of his efforts in this book to cure Christians of that deadly legalism. So now Paul brings God's covenantal arrangement into the argument. He's anticipating an objection from the Judaizers. And he begins by pointing out our first observation this morning in verse 15. That once a covenant is made, it must be fulfilled. Look at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, Paul's argument in these four verses is based upon two kinds of covenants that I've already mentioned. One is a covenant of works and the other a covenant of grace. And these kinds of covenants are throughout the scriptures. A covenant of works is a covenantal arrangement wherein two or more parties agree to conditions that must be fulfilled. So, for example, we speak of God's covenantal arrangement with Adam in the garden as a covenant of works. Do this and you shall be blessed, or do that and you shall be cursed, or the same in the negative. Don't do this and you will be blessed. Don't do that or you will be cursed. So in other words, there are conditions that were placed upon Adam in the garden, right? He was in covenantal relationship with God. He was obliged, he was obligated to meet certain requirements. This is a covenant based upon law. And it's this kind of covenantal arrangement that we are most accustomed to in our culture because of things like contracts and and business agreements. Likewise, we, we live under laws for all sorts of things. How fast we drive our cars whether or not we can build a shed in our backyard. If you live in a community with a homeowner's association, how many leaves can fall on the grass before you are fined? Or how many minutes your trash can can sit out on the curb before, after it's dumped before they give you a warning? 
I think some people walk around their neighborhoods with a homeowners association for fun, just trying to find infractions on their neighbors so that they can write a little letter to the president and you can get a warning. And if that is you, stop it. (laughs) I've not gotten a warning, I promise. (laughs) But that's a covenant of works. That is a relationship we have with others based upon law, based upon rule. Even our communities are called covenant-controlled communities. That is a covenant of works. But the Bible also shows us that God enters into a covenant of grace. A covenant of grace is a covenant that is unconditional. It holds out a promise that is fulfilled unilaterally by God and not any merit of man whatsoever. So the covenant of works was conditional. It depends on man's working. A covenant of grace is unconditional on man's part. It depends solely and completely on God's fulfilling the promise that he makes. The believer simply has faith. And faith is different than works. Remember, works achieves the promise. Faith receives the promise. Works seizes the promise. Faith believes that God has and will fulfill the promise. So works is a merit of man. Faith is a gift from God. Works says, I will go and get that promise for myself. And faith says, God has given the promise to me. So in a covenant of works, God says, you must do. But in a covenant of grace, God says, I will do. And it's as good as done. Which one do you want to live under? So these are the two types of covenants that come into play throughout Scripture. And specifically here in Paul's argument, he's going to address both of them. Paul is saying up front, listen, even in a man-made covenant, once the agreement is made, once it's settled on, it cannot be changed. Once you signed on the dotted line, it stands as is. So, for example, if you're selling your house and someone agrees to purchase it for $200,000, you have an agreement drafted up, Both parties sign it and it's ratified. It is a done deal. They're going to pay you $200,000. You're going to give them your house and it is now their property. It's an exchange. Now, once that agreement is made, you cannot come back and say, oh, wait, before I give you the keys, I'm going to need another $50,000. Or you don't say... Thanks for the money, but I've decided that I'm going to go ahead and keep the house, so never mind. Well, your signature on the dotted line means two things. One, the house doesn't belong to you anymore. And two, the payment you're getting in return is $200,000. That was the agreement, and it stands. Paul is saying, once those terms are set, nobody gets to annul it, nobody gets to change it. It's a very... Simplistic explanation, I realize, but that's Paul's point. Once a covenant is made, it must be fulfilled. And that includes all of its blessings, that includes all of its curses. So when God told Adam, Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you shall surely die. When Adam ate of the tree, he had to die. Death was not a previous reality for him. 
But once he ate of the tree, death came upon him and all of creation. It could not be changed. So Paul's point is, in a human example, covenants do not change, and they are not annulled. And just the same with God, covenants do not change and are not annulled. Now the reason why he makes this argument should be a bit more clear as we move on. But first, Paul presents a second observation for us this morning, and that's in verse 16. Paul shows us that we cannot understand the promises of God apart from Christ. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. My working assumption here is that we all understand that God's ultimate purpose is, as a father, to adopt a people onto himself as sons and daughters who will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by faith, in the Son of God. But this wasn't just implied in God's promise to Abraham. This was explicit. But we need to see how the promises that were made to Abraham relate to the promises of the, the promise of the Spirit of God. There are three specific elements to the promise made to Abraham by God, and you're likely familiar with all three of them. One, God promised Abraham that he would inherit the promised land, Genesis 13, 15. Second, God promised Abraham that he would have descendants without number, Genesis 13, 16. And third, God promised Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis twenty two eighteen. Now, we can't deny the immediate context of these promises being that through the Jewish nation, all of these things would come true, and they did. The Israelites possessed the land in the days of Joshua. The Israelites became a large number of people as a nation. And lastly, Christ was born as a Jewish descendant of Abraham, and through his establishment of the church, his gospel continues even today to be proclaimed throughout the world. However, we have to understand that these historical fulfillments are not the primary purpose for the promise given to Abraham from God. The primary purpose of God's promises to Abraham are spiritual in nature. And this will be Paul's argument here in Galatians, especially when we get into chapter 4. We're helped in this by the writer of Hebrews. He, He points out that Joshua did not, in fact, provide rest to Israel by their conquering of the promised land. So there had to be another kind of fulfillment of this promise of God, which is spiritual in nature. That's Hebrews 4, 8, and 9. And then again in Hebrews chapter 11, he states specifically that Abraham 
died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So Abraham's hope was not in the fulfillment of these things at all physically. But we read in Hebrews that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose builder and designer is God. And his desire for, was for a better country that is a heavenly one. Again, Hebrews 11. And you're probably thinking, so what? But this gets to the heart of what Paul is teaching us in verse 16 with regard to the promises made to Abraham with his offspring or, or seed. Now Paul's argument is that the offspring of Abraham is ultimately Christ himself. Some translations use the word seed, which I prefer here simply because it helps us to hear the singular versus the plural in what he's trying to argue. But offspring works also in both singular and plural form. So Paul writes, it doesn't say and to offsprings or seeds referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. In other words, the promise was given to Abraham from God. And Abraham was holding that promise in trust. And it was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So the promise was made through Abraham. Not to the Jews as a nation, but to Christ himself. That's Paul's argument. The offspring or the seed that was to inherit the promise is singular and not plural. So it's Christ, not the Israelite nation. So what then do we do with the three promises we've already mentioned in light of this reality? First, the land. Well, by Christ's defeat of sin and death and Satan, the promised land of salvation would be secured for his people not on a few square miles in the Middle East, but as an eternal resting place for the people of God who have ceased from their labors. Hebrews 4.10. Secondly, the promise of descendants. Christ would redeem and regenerate individuals from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And Peter says those who are in Christ are born of incorruptible seed by the word of God. That is, they are called through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are born by the spirit of God. And thirdly, the blessing of the nations. Every nation on the earth will be represented among the ransomed people of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 5, 9. So these are the ultimate fulfillment of these promises given to Abraham. So hopefully you're seeing the point that Paul has made. The promises of God to Abraham make no sense apart from Christ ultimately. You cannot understand what God has done among his people without the gospel. That's the point. It takes the gospel to see the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, no doubt, Paul is well aware that the noun offspring can be used in the singular and also in the plural. He uses it later in the plural. He's not denying that God promised Abraham a seed more numerous than the stars of the heaven in Genesis 15.5. But 
he's teaching that the promises belong not to Abraham's physical seed, but ultimately to his spiritual seed. And that is only the seed who is Christ that the promises will come to the Jews and to the Gentiles. So he builds on the promise of Genesis 3.15, that the seed of woman, singular, will destroy the serpent who is Satan. The seed of woman is the promised Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. So when God swore to Abraham to bless him and to make him a blessing to the world, God was promising to bring the seed through the descendants of Abraham. So in this way, to call Christ Abraham's seed is to call Christ the true Israel. So as Paul writes to the Galatians, he is insistent on demonstrating that all the promises of God, culminating in the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people, are centered on Jesus Christ and cannot be received or enjoyed outside of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you wish to inherit the promises made to Abraham and to his offspring? They are yours. And we must, as Paul writes in Philippians 3, be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness is which, which is from God by faith. Friend, if you are not in Christ you too can inherit the blessings of Abraham. An eternal rest, an incorruptible body with everlasting life, free from the world and the flesh and the devil. And you don't receive the promises by working for it, by fulfilling a requirement, because on your own, you cannot do it. You receive the promise by simply trusting in Christ by grace through faith. Faith in Christ, that is it. Repent of your sin and believe on Christ. For God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in him becoming sin, in his becoming the curse on the tree, that we might be free from the curse, he has inherited all of the promises of God to his people and gives them to us that we might be everlastingly blessed. And it is in Christ alone that the blessings are fulfilled and the promises are found. Well, having made his point that Christ is the offspring, Paul now gets into our third and final point this morning in verses 17 and 18. And that is that the Mosaic covenant does not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. Now, here's where Paul's argument starts to come together a bit. You see, the problem with the Judaizers was that they were confusing the two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And as a result, they were going to argue with Paul and what he's addressing here in these two verses. His point is that God does not break his promises. We break promises all of the time. We are accustomed to promises being broken, but God is faithful to his promise. Now, In what Paul is saying, the Judaizers may have gotten the idea that maybe God did break his promise by confusing the two covenants. 
All along in this letter, Paul has shown us that the divide between law and faith is as far as the east is from the west. However, Paul has not argued that the law is evil or invalid. His point has been that obedience to the law cannot save a person because the demand of the law is absolute perfection. So Paul has not said that no one, uh, excuse me, rather, he has said that no one will keep the law perfectly. And so eternal life will never be obtained through law keeping. You cannot be justified by keeping the law because you cannot keep the law. But the Judaizers have confused the covenants, and in doing so, they fuse together law and faith, work and trust. And so the idea that the Judaizers had was that God held out the possibility of life to Israel by the law because they assumed they were able to obtain it. Their belief, and indeed some Christians believe this today, was that God would never command something if it was impossible for you to fulfill it. But here comes Paul who says that law-keeping Jews don't inherit the promises through obedience to the law. One, because they're not actually keeping the law. And two, the inheritance comes through faith. It's the only way, because the only way man can relate to God in such a way that God will redeem him is by faith. So the Judaizers assumed that Paul's God must be a promise breaker because he's changing the way of salvation. He gave a promise, but then he gives the law. The covenant must be annulled, they assume. It must be changed if what Paul is saying is true. But as Paul has pointed out already, he's not going to really get into that they missed the boat altogether. He, he really jumps in this in chapter 4 especially. But the covenant cannot be annulled by another covenant. We have to understand all that's going on within the covenants. So what, what's going on here? Well, we have to think chronologically in terms of what was promised and what was fulfilled and how. And I think it's probably easier than it sounds. First, Abraham was promised three things which we've already mentioned. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So remember, he believed in Christ as the object of his faith and the content of his faith was the gospel and all that God had promised him. The land, the descendants, and the blessing of the nations. Now remember, we said the ultimate fulfillment of all of this was spiritual in nature. However, it does have a very real physical element. The Israelites eventually saw these things come to pass in a very real physical sense. They took the land they were promised. They were required by God to live under a covenant of works upon the land. It wasn't for their salvation, But it was a covenant that promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience while they lived upon the physical land. So Paul looks at this national covenant of works given to a corporate people concerning the land and the temple and all the blessings and curses, and he points out that it came centuries after the promise that was given 
and received by Abraham by faith. So in other words, receiving the promises never, ever came by the law, but only and always through faith. For the promise was continually given and re-given to the Israelites, even while they continued to believe they were right with God because of their obedience to the law. But Paul corrects this thinking in verse 18. He says, let's read 17 and 18. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Notice the language Paul uses. He doesn't say, if the inheritance no longer comes by law, or else that would imply that it once did. He says very straightforwardly that the inheritance does not come by law, but by promise. You see, to receive the promise of God, you must have a promise given. And the law is not the promise But what did we see last week? The law is a curse which threatens to punish whenever it is not carried out perfectly. The law came after the promise to point the way to Christ. So you see, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant do not work against one another and they do not annul one another. They work in tandem together to accomplish very different tasks. So the inheritance, the the benefits promised to Abraham would be lost if God changed the terms of the covenant. However, God has not changed the terms. He promised the inheritance to Abraham and he sealed the promise with an oath. And by promise and oath, God guaranteed to Abraham that he would fulfill all that he has said. So the promise and the means of obtaining that promise, which is faith, remain in effect. If the inheritance were by law, God would have changed the principle of inheritance. So you see, the problem with what was going on among the churches in Galatia was not that God changed the principle of inheritance, but it was, in fact, the Judaizers who were trying to change it. They had confused the covenants. They fused together these requirements to conclude that one's justification may be by faith, but to continue in the Christian life, it depended upon their works. And so they were putting themselves under the covenant of grace, but also under the covenant of works. The fourth century theologian, uh, Ambrosiator, he said this, Once the promise had been established, the law was given subsequently. Not so that it could undermine the promise, but so that it might point to what was to be fulfilled and when it would come. Ultimately, it was Christ who was promised to Abraham. He is ultimately what this is all about. Brothers and sisters, I hope you aren't looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth as much as you're looking forward to everlasting, unhindered, unbroken, untainted communion with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Brothers and sisters and friends, please hear this. Each and every person is born into a covenant of works. You are required to uphold the law of God in absolute perfection. But there's a problem. You cannot do it. So, we have a great dilemma. God requires something of you that you cannot do. You need the covenant of grace if you are to live. All men everywhere are under one of two covenants. We all begin under the covenant of works. Some of us, by grace, through faith in Christ, are brought into and are partakers of the inheritance of the covenant of grace, which came only because Jesus Christ was made a curse for us on the tree. He did it all by the promises that he kept. A promise that was made in the mysterious counsel of the Godhead in eternity past. A promise that was given to saints whom the Messiah was to be born from. A promise that was made by God to God for the sake of those whom he has chosen. Friends, if you are not in Christ, I commend him to you that you would consider him and what he has done, that you would recognize your inability to live up to the requirements of the law that you reside under, and then repent and believe. Believe the promise and the trustworthiness of God. Brothers and sisters, we have the great joy of living in the covenant of grace. May it never be that we put ourselves under a covenant of works. We do not earn and obtain the favor of God by our efforts. When God gave the covenant to the Israelites at Sinai, it wasn't to tell them that they could fulfill it and live by it and attain life. It was to show them that they needed Christ if they were to inherit all that God promised in his covenant with Abraham. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, 20 and 22, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God in your heart is a guarantee that God will fulfill all that he has promised in the new heavens and the new earth with a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation because of what Christ has accomplished for us to bring us to live by grace under his gracious, loving, and merciful authority. May we rejoice forever and ever in this glorious covenant-keeping God and his promises for all who believe in the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we admit with the Apostle Peter that some of your word and some of the writings of Paul are difficult They challenge us. They challenge us to think hard and to think expansively. But Lord, buried in the difficulty are some very deep riches. 
And I pray, God, that through feeble efforts that have been offered today, that you would be pleased to put your word upon the hearts of your people, that we may love it, that we may walk in obedience to it, that we might rejoice in it, because you have accomplished a great work for us that we could not accomplish for ourselves. We rejoice in Christ who has fulfilled the covenant of works that we have failed to uphold. And we are thankful that by his fulfillment of the covenant of works, that by faith we become partakers of the covenant of grace. And all the inheritance that is promised to Abraham and has been obtained by Christ for us. May we rejoice in life in Christ. We pray, God, that today, this very day, by the power of your Spirit, that you would bring those who know not Christ away from the covenant of works, that they too might rest in the covenant of grace for their, glor- their, their good and for the glory that you receive in the salvation of lost and dead souls. May you do this for your namesake and for the rejoicing of your church. We ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.